Welcome to Hungry for Words, a podcast in which I have lunch with a food writer and you get to listen in. I'm your host, Kathleen Flynn. I'm pretty psyched for our guest today, Holly Hughes. Holly's last day job was as executive editor for Fodder's Travel Guides. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But in the 1990s, she left that corner office to pursue a freelance life, winging it around the world, writing about music, travel, and food. Since 2000, she has been the editor of Best Food Writing, an annual collection of terrific and often eclectic culinary works. In my world, getting a piece into Best Food Writing is second only to winning a James Beard Award. It's like this huge stamp of approval. It's bragging rights, and it's something that people put on their resumes. I've always been intrigued by how Holly has made the decision about what goes in, and quite honestly, why none of my work has ever been (laughs) in these books. And so I found out in this interview, and it was not the answer that I expected. Listen in and you'll find out. One note, stay tuned. At the end of this podcast, I have a surprising update on the best food writing series. As always, going to start with the recipe. So I really had a hard time deciding what to make for Holly. There are, what, 17 years worth of books, and, you know, there aren't a lot of recipes in the best food writing series, but there are enough. I ended up settling on two because I really couldn't pick one. The first one I've actually been wanting to make since I first read about it in the 2015 edition and is the Nashville hot chicken. I'm a little intimidated by this recipe because I see things like three quarter cup of cayenne and like that's not normal. You don't talk about cayenne in like cups. Crazy. And uh, it looks like it could be just blazingly hot. It seems like something that could go awfully wrong and I but you know what I love me some hot chicken and I'm just gonna go for that and then the other one is actually an asparagus soup and this is like such an interesting counterpoint but the soup recipe is actually done by Bethany Jean Clement who's a food writer for the Seattle Times and I remember when this recipe ran and I always wanted to make it you know throw out some hometown love so I'm just gonna make that too we're gonna go crazy in my kitchen I'm gonna make two recipes it's anarchy so her soup recipe is pretty straightforward she does make a nice stock with this asparagus I think what I'm really gonna focus talking about though is gonna be this crazy hot chicken thing so let's just get down to it it strikes me as being kind of similar to the way that they make authentic Belgian french fries which is that you fry it twice. You fry it at a lower temperature, 300 degrees, and then you let the chicken rest and then you redredge it again in this super spicy flour and then you fry it again, but at a higher temperature, 350, which is quite high. And then because you haven't used enough cayenne yet, take the remaining cayenne pepper seasoning we put together and then you mix it with butter because why not? You actually make it into a paste and after you get done frying it, then you paint this incredibly spicy butter paste on top of fried chicken. This is like a kind of madness, but I'm gonna do it. This calls for three cups of buttermilk. If you don't have buttermilk, it's very easy to make it. Fill up a cup with milk, pour out about a tablespoon, and then just add a tablespoon 
of vinegar, wait 15 minutes, and voila, you have buttermilk. The other thing that I don't have that this recipe calls for is self-rising flour. And so self-rising flour is something that just, it, it just has baking soda in it and some salt. And so if you go to the recipe page for this episode, you'll find how to make this. Okay, now I'm adding the spices to the buttermilk. Now I'm gonna whisk. Okay, and now I just put the chicken in there and I am going to coat them and I am tossing to coat. Using my tongs, I would not put my fingers into this wickedly spicy batch of goodness if I were you. I'm gonna cover this guy up and they are gonna go marinate and I'm going to retrieve it in the morning. Okay, I don't really fry a lot. This is always a very kind of exciting and kind of scary thing. So I am heating up oil and watching the thermometer race up. The kind of cool thing about, about frying, and I don't fry very often, is it's kind of interesting. You drop it in, it kind of turns a little weirdly foamy for a minute. And it gets brown really fast. It's very satisfying. I will also share a tip that I learned a long time ago, which is never, ever, ever drop anything into a deep fryer with your hands. Always use tongs. Always. You'll never regret using tongs, but you know what? You may regret not using them. That's all I gotta say. Okay, I have now successfully done the first round of frying, and now I'm actually going back through and refrying them. So I dredge them one more time in the flour mixture and then I put them back through and this time you only do it for a couple of minutes and it's really interesting. They turn a really beautiful dark brown. It's actually very satisfying this entire process. Listen to that. That is the sound of beautiful fried goodness. Now I'm going to step away from the fryer and I am going to paint these with this paste. This smells amazing and it's very dark. It's really beautiful. I can't wait to try this. In fact, I can't wait for Holly to try this. Well, let's see how it goes. Well, Holly, welcome to my kitchen. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I can't tell you. I've been, I actually have every copy of Best Food Writing. But this year, I always like to think of these books as in terms of not the year on the cover, but the picture on the cover, because every year they have this beautiful still life of some kind of food, and this year they have figs. I, they're beautiful figs. Yes, actually. although I'm still yearning for the 2016 bowl of butternut squash soup. You know, I got that, and I, I went and picked it up at Elliott Bay, and mm -hmm. I was walking home, and I went by my local grocery store, and I got butternut squash, and I, I made soup. so much this year, because I have that <laughs> book on my desk looking at me go, you know what would really go down well? Be some butternut squash soup. Right. With pumpkin seeds on them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so tell me, how did, how did the Best Food Writing series start? Where did, it, where did it all begin? I was working at Fodor's Travel Guides and um, certainly spent much more time on the dining sections than any other part of it. It was, you know, it was interesting to me to uh, get to know the names of people who were big in the various food scenes. And um, and I think that was back in the late 90s. That was when we first began to realize that New York and San Francisco were not the only cities in the country that had interesting dining scenes. I mean, 
Seattle was really becoming interesting at that time. Atlanta was beginning to become very interesting. Um, people were beginning to realize that New Orleans was a place you should go for a food vacation, not just a music vacation. So I was really into this. And almost at the same time, two other people, one of them was my publisher at Fodor's and another one was somebody else I was doing some work with, got this idea that food writing could be as much fun to read as a short story. And we realized that Houghton Mifflin, which does the best short stories, the best now they do best travel writing, best sports writing, um, that they would probably come out with the best food writing edition. So we jumped on it really fast and set this up. So that was the year 2000. And I think we were kind of just coming out of you know, the 80s when food was fashion. Yeah, I like to think, think of the big plates and all the star chefs and the official foodie handbook. And at that time, it was trendy in this kind of glitzy way. And you could look down your nose at people who made a big deal about where they went out to eat and what they had when they were there. But it was starting to get more substantial. Um, I guess it was 19, I have to look at my notes, I think 1996, the first food studies program was started at NYU. Marion Nestle started that. In 1999, the Southern Foodways Alliance started. So there was some sense that there was more about food uh, culturally and politically and uh, environmentally that needed to be talked about. It wasn't just about how beautiful your presentation was and you know, would the chef stop by your table to say hello to you when you were in the restaurant? So I think we kind of hit the market at a time when food was just beginning to come out of that shell. People would say to me when I said, we're starting this new project, they say, how are you going to fill a whole book with just food writing? And I realized at the time they were thinking, you know, recipe pieces from what were then called the women's pages of the, of the newspaper and, you know, dining reviews that just gave stars and list of what was on the menu. But even then, that first year, we had no trouble filling. People forgot that memoirs and travel pieces can sometimes be food pieces. And, you know, interesting profiles with chefs could be things. And people were writing, you know, beautiful little memoirs about their grandmother's chocolate chip cookies and the, or the smell of their mother's kitchen. But they just weren't being read nationally. And the internet was just getting going enough so that I could find a wonderful writer in Denver that nobody but the Denver market was reading. And, you know, an obscure piece about something that was happening in New Mexico. And bringing them all together got a wider audience for those writers and allowed people who are reading this book to understand that there's a really diverse world of food in America. And... Um, you know, so the travel pieces didn't all have to be, oh, I finally got to Italy and now I can eat good food. You can eat good food in Kansas City. So that was the wonderful thing that once we sat down and started doing it, that we discovered that we hadn't known was going to be there. So sometimes you have to step off the cliff and try something, and then you find out it was a good idea. What also is interesting to me is how few recipes there are in every book. Yeah, people thought that there would be all recipes. I think the first few books, there were more recipes um, and, and some pieces, uh, like in a Bon Appetit story, it's a wonderful story, and then the kitchen crew comes along and adds some recipes because people buy Bon Appetit for recipes. But they weren't written by the author, and they don't really have that much relevance to the piece, so sometimes we won't reprint the recipes for that if they aren't organic. But if the whole piece all leads up to the recipe, then you've got to have the recipe. Right, and, and to me, it really warms my heart because... 
I mean, I'm a narrative nonfiction writer, so I, was, I, I love to see, I love seeing all the different examples and the different ways you can tell stories. And, you know, Anthony Bourdain has a great quote where he says, I just ask people really simple questions about food, and they tell extraordinary stories about themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that is one of the things about food writing that everyone thinks that you're, you're being very objective about food. This is good. This is not good. This is the way to cook this. But there's nothing objective about food. You love a dish because of something else you love or because the t- first time you tasted it, you were in a good place in your life. So when you get at the story behind the taste, that's when it really opens up for everybody. Speaking of that, so today, I this is the first time, by the way, that I've made two dishes. So I, I was feeling really ambitious. I, I wanted to do a, a recipe out of the 2017 edition. And so I happened to have read Bethany's story when she wrote it. Mm-hmm. And I remember the, the asparagus soup. And so I thought, oh, I'll make asparagus soup. I know it's October. I know that it's not seasonal, <laughs> but it is local, came from BC, so local for here. But I have longed and looked for an excuse to make this hot Nashville chicken that was in the 2015 edition. <laughs> so for the first time in years, I actually fried something. I'm really excited. It says to serve it with white bread. I, I have to be true to myself and here's some baguette. But I did. <laughs> you don't have two slices of cheap grocery store bread? I know. And then, But I do have pickles. Okay. So, so should we start with the soup first? I'd love to. Yeah. I am a huge asparagus fan. Me too. I love asparagus. This looks gorgeous. Thanks. I really like this soup because she starts out by taking the stalks and puts them in the broth to give it like sort of make its own stock which i i love that i love when people use the whole vegetable yeah and this really has a depth of flavor to it you mm-hmm. wouldn't get otherwise yeah it tastes like just it tastes like asparagus which is funny because sometimes you know you can overwork soup and do too much to it yeah i love bethany's writing she's been in several of the editions mm-hmm. and she has a great sense of humor I, I have to admit i have a prejudice towards funny pieces and a prejudice towards pieces that really have more personality. Whether or not it's a first-person thing, but you know, being able to go more colloquial with the writing. And I think that that's a reflection of how many different outlets now have food writing, that it is not looked at as a reference piece anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's a great point. And I thought this story is a good example of that. Because her opening line is, Can a family have a vegetable the way a state has a bird? Why not? My family's is, inconvertibly, asparagus. And I really like that because I could kind of see, it's a nice visual, I can see sort of the state flag, but now I can, that they had one, like for their family flag, it would have like a big bunch of asparagus (laughs) on it. The other thing that I made um, is Nashville hot chicken. So I've been really excited to try this. And I will say, I have never been to Nashville and eaten, I mean, been to Nashville before hot chicken you know, was known, mm-hmm. and I regret that the three times I was in Nashville, I didn't know about hot chicken, and I can't wait to get back there to eat hot chicken. Yeah. I mean, I basically want to go to Nashville to have hot chicken. I know. So. People, <laughs> oh, really I love Nashville. It's got country food, country music, and I said, yeah, and hot chicken. And hot chicken, <laughs> right. So I'm going to dig into this. Now, I was kind of shocked by um, how much 
cayenne that's called for. And I have to admit, I just back off a slight bit on the cayenne because it was like nine tablespoons of cayenne. It was like <laughs> two-thirds cup or something, like like a, like a measurement you don't see with cayenne, you know, yeah. that's not, like, appropriate, you know. So, and this was from the 2015 book uh, edition. Yeah, the recipe with, is in the 2015 book. There is another piece about hot chicken in this year's book. In this, yeah, that's right, that's right. So, Which um, is more of a sort of a... Of a spiced craze, spice crazed guy going to Nashville just to eat hot chicken and going to every place wow. that served it and comparing all the hot chickens. And, but that, you know, as pieces I love often go off on some other tangent, and he talks about growing up and how he you know, was able to work make a real training regimen to increase his tolerance for spice. Yeah, and so he felt that going to Nashville and eating hot chicken was going to prove his life's work of building up his spice tolerance was a success. That's awesome. <laughs> um, I'm going to let you try it first. Try it first. All right, biting into it. Hmm, it's pretty hot. Okay, I love hot things, but. Mm. At the beginning, it didn't taste as hot as I thought it would be. But now it's got kind of a big burn going on in my mouth. <laughs> mm. This is a, a spicy chicken. taste with legs. Yeah. It just keeps, keeps going. giving that gift. Mm-hmm. But it's delicious. Yeah. And after the first mm. bite, you say, oh, that didn't kill me. I think I'll take a second bite of this. <laughs> exactly. I also now see the need for the white bread. The bread. I can kind of see the pickles, too, because of the heat. Yes, you want some vinegar to cut that taste. But mm-hmm. boy, this is good. Mm. The fact that people all over the country now know about hot chicken, you know, there's this kind of organic thing to the food writing thing. And one person hears about something and mentions it to somebody else, and eventually there's an article about it in Savor. Or I, I wonder why people outside of Nashville, I mean, Nashville had hot chicken, and you know, about it. And Cincinnati has chili dogs. and. They never thought that, you know, mentioning it to anybody else outside of Cincinnati. And now when I go to Cincinnati, my first thought is, can't wait to get a chili dog. You know, that we have this like food map where we know what the special things are everywhere we go. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really great point. I grew up in Michigan and we have Coney Islands. Yeah. So and and everybody's like, oh, this Coney place is better than that Coney place. But when I was telling someone about it years ago. In fact, when I first moved to Seattle, like 20 years ago, I mentioned that to someone and they were completely confused. They didn't understand why would Michigan have Coney dogs? I'm like, oh, well, it's this whole story and it's da-da-da-da-da and whatever. And, you know, and, and now somebody's actually written a whole book about Coney Islands and Detroit and Flint and, and Michigan. But I, I think you're right that it's, it's something progressive that's happened over time. Yeah. Well, it used to be, I think, that people who considered themselves... And the words change, you know, change in context, but gourmet or gourmands or epicures or foodies, which nobody would admit to being anymore, would have these trophy restaurants that were hard to get reservations. You had to wait for a long time. Um, you had to make sure you got a good table. And that was it. They were high-end. They were expensive. They were in Paris, New York, maybe San Francisco, not London. Oh, my God, you couldn't eat good food in London. Now you can get good food just about anywhere. My husband and I drove down to see the total solar eclipse in North Carolina, and we stopped off in some small town in Virginia. There was a perfectly 
beautiful restaurant there, you know, with blonde wood floors and spare things, a be- few beautiful pieces of art on the, on the walls, and beautiful food presentation, and absolutely fresh farm-to-table. It wasn't one of those faux rustic farm-to-table places, but this was clearly a sophisticated restaurant in this small town. And we had a, a really marvelous meal. I thought, isn't this... Isn't this wonderful? I mean, there are certain markers. You go into town and you look for certain things. You think, I think that place is going to be serving the kind of food I like to eat. But it'll be authentic. It'll be of that place. But it's not like a place that could only be there. It's like part of this kind of restaurant that you, talented, ambitious chefs can go to just about any town and you'll find a local audience of people who know enough about food to appreciate what you're trying to do. And I think that's... That's much different than it was in the year 2000. You were talking a little earlier about, you know, you like humor. That's a big thing. Um, and you like people who have sort of a something more personal or colloquial or whatever. How do you decide? I mean, and you must just get a deluge of submissions. So probably not in the first few years, but I bet you do now. One, how do you read all that stuff? And two, how do you decide? I actually had somebody ask me, to estimate how many pieces I read. And then, you know, I think it may be up to about 1,200 or 1,500 now, with the caveat that I don't read everything all the way to the end. There's a certain point at which I say, this is not going to work. And I do get a lot of submissions, but I can't trust that. I also have to go hunt for certain things. Food writers are very generous in sending me other people's work, which I think is a wonderful thing and maybe wouldn't be true among fiction writers. You know, people are really jealous of getting their audience, but you know, I've just I've discovered places to look where I'm likely to find things. And the internet is amazing because in the middle of a piece that's pretty good about something, they'll refer you to another piece. And I go to it and I think, oh, wait, this is the first piece about this. This is the one that started this conversation. This is the one I want to have. So, you know, embedded links, and I always follow them because they sometimes lead you to some interesting places. So I read all these things. I usually come down to about maybe 250 pieces that I said, yeah, I'm going to hang on to this one. I want to see if if we can make this fit. And then begins this process of seeing how they cohere into different little clusters within the book that have several topic headings. And um, things that really work together well have a better chance of all getting in to the book. So that allows me to winnow down some things. And then we start the permissions process, and there's always a few that get knocked out because the publisher is asking for too much money, which is really kills me. You know, the writer will sometimes too late contact me and say, is there anything I can do, anything I can do? And, you know, they've already quoted us a, a crazy price on it, and which is a shame because that writer could have had a nice accolade or you know gotten their work out to more readers so that knocks a few more out and then there's like this awful period when I just have to say yes we can let that one go yes we because that section's too big you know but we have to get it down to 45 to 50 pieces and I've sometimes had the experience of talking to someone and saying, oh, I love the piece you had in the 2012 book I didn't have a piece in the 2012 book. You cut my piece from the 2012 book. And I feel terrible because in my heart, that's in that book. I wanted it in the book. The, the wonderful thing is when we started out, we said, can we really fill this book every year? And the answer is, can we get everything we want into it ever? Uh, there's always more pieces than we can use. 
So I, I put that out there for any writer who ever had a piece that got cut. It didn't mean I didn't love your piece. I have not had any of my work in your books in the collection yet. So you're serious? No, I'm serious. But I keep hoping. I'm gonna. I actually uh, twice at least. I know we've gone through the permissions process with <clears throat> things of yours. Really? Yeah. Oh my god, I'm, that makes me feel so much better now. So, oh my god, I really yeah. thought I was going to say which what, which was the year that we yeah. had the piece of yours. Maybe my publisher was one of those people who wanted too much money. Yeah, it is hard with book excerpts because yeah. they tend to see it as a revenue stream. Yeah, I bet. And and that uh, brings me to an interesting um, point, which is what kind of rights are you buying for the book? And how much do you pay on average? I mean, it probably goes everywhere from zero to there's probably some Yeah, there some are limit. some people who say, no, it's just an honor to have it and you don't need to pay me anything. Right. You get mm-hmm. it back in free copies or something. Mm-hmm. And book excerpts tend to cost us more, so that's why we have fewer book excerpts. One thing that we found is that writers who are writing for periodicals, if they retain the rights, then they can control granting permission instead of it going to some central clearinghouse that doesn't know who you are and doesn't know who the, what the book is and doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a little tip for writers you know, writing for magazines and, and newspapers, that if you retain your rights, if you can... You know, we we pay, I don't know, a hundred, hundred fifty. You know, it's it's an honorarium more than, than something you know you might go out to dinner on what you get. But it's to be in the book and to have your work reach a wider audience and be alongside people who were your mentors and your models. And yeah, no, absolutely. So I teach food writing, and one of the things I always try to instill in my students is the idea that, you know, that writing isn't really linear, that it's actually much more cyclical, that, you know, you need to have a really great opening, a strong middle, and kind of tie it up at the end, which is, I think, where a lot of bloggers kind of lose it. It's at the end Mm -hmm. where they just go, so... Okay, I hope you make this recipe. Enjoy. You know, they kind of don't finish up their story. They don't tie it up. But they think the recipe is the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they don't have to prove it. But I think there's always, what I often have said is that I will will actually do a, a restaurant review piece if it stops in the middle and starts to open it out and talk about more things. Why we go out to eat. The principle of hospitality. And, uh, and with a cooking piece as well, um, there's a piece in this year, which I love, from, by Julia Moskin of the New York Times, about retooling the chicken pot pie. I read that, yeah. And she talks about being a kid and seeing her mother take the frozen chicken pot pie out of the freezer. And she says, yay, a babysitter's coming. You know? So these things have these extra meaning. And that memory made me immediately think, I feel the same way about chicken pot pies you do, Julia. Now I'm really on board with finding out how you're going to improve the chicken pot pie without losing those qualities that we loved, you know, on those Saturday nights when we were kids. And then she talks about why you want to update a recipe. We actually have, we've never had this before, a whole section in the book called Updating the Classics. And they were all about this. You know, Joe Yonan writes a piece about the salad his mother used to make. You know, he's a vegetarian now, so he's not going to be putting ground beef in it. He doesn't want to put ground meat substitute in it. So he has to figure out a way of honoring what was about the classic that he loved and then 
retooling it and making a salad that's fit for his lifestyle now. So in the middle of it, you're talking about why we love food and how we feel about family and how we feel about feeding other people. That makes it more than a recipe piece. Yeah, that it goes somewhere else. That it starts out kind of catchy or makes a statement. I think Julia's piece starts out with, you know, of course everyone agrees that everybody loves creamed food or something yeah. like that. And she's like, no, actually I don't. People's tastes have changed. And she knocks off like a list of like three or four different things that I went, oh, wow, I never yeah. see that on a menu anymore. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> chicken a la king or whatever. So, and, um, but then she, and then, you know, she goes on to talk about the chicken pot pie. And actually almost, I looked at that because that's one of the recipes in the book is the chicken pot pie. And I think that's a, another point that the, you had to have the recipe with that piece because you needed yes. to see what she did. Yeah, yeah. That it was really integral to the story itself. Yeah. And sometimes, what I also love is, um, I'm, I mean, I have no special insights into recipe writing. Uh, but, you know, certainly I've read a lot of pieces about the difference between the old recipes when they say, a knob of butter. And they used to know what a knob of butter meant. And if it wasn't exactly two and a half ounces, that was okay. And then there's people who write these really, really overly prescriptive recipes. Oh, my God. It's like, I know you are an idiot, and I have to hold your hand completely. So do one of the teaspoons. That's the smaller spoon on your... And I just... I can't stand the condescension of that recipe writing. And then there are other people who write hysterically funny recipes where it says, I know, just keep beating that sucker until it foams up. And I, I just really like that because you feel like you've got a friend at your elbow in the kitchen with you saying, I know, this is the hard part. You know, but just like suck it up and flip that and see if it comes out right. I was reading a recipe by... Clotilde, who does the chocolate and zucchini. Yeah. I just remember stopping in the middle of this recipe and, and laughing because she said, now you have to drag out your inner Julia child and, like, make sure you just make sure that thing is as, like, flat as you can get it. She was talking about some dough or some pie crust or something and, and turn it every quarter. And, if you, you know, like, don't you don't have to, like, like measure it. It doesn't matter if it's an exactly a quarter turn, but you just want to be turning it around so you get it flat. That yeah, like it's, you know and the reason uh, why you're doing these things. And I, I just laughed. I just thought it was such a funny directive. <laughs> so in terms of opening lines, I picked out a few that I really liked. When you're reading fifteen hundred pieces, I would imagine that the opening line is probably pretty important. Yes. There are pieces that have great openings and I have such great hope for that piece. And then it doesn't continue. And I also know, I've had a couple of times when writers said, oh, and I won't say the name of the particular, but there's a couple of the big glossy national food magazines where the writer will say, I'm so sorry you have to use the copy, the version that they published, because they have their house style and they took the piece that I wrote that I loved and put it through their ringer and had it come out. You know, and it was still a good piece. And then they'd send me their version. I thought, oh, yeah, that would kind of have been better. But we have to go with the published version. C'est la vie. Yeah. So here's a couple of opening lines I liked. Uh, this one is the Great Bourbon Taste Test, which... I love this piece. <laughs> I was like, you had me at bourbon, <laughs> right? So by Wells Tower from my favorite named magazine, by the way, Garden and Gun. Garden and Gun is some of the best food books. It does. Know. It's like some Who of knew? the best food writing. It's so great. Okay, here's the opening line. 
Quote, I'm not sure we've got enough bourbon, unquote, said the chef Sean Brock on the morning of the epic whiskey tasting. Brock was joking. The quantity of bourbon in the room had turned the daylight brown. <laughs> Such a good... It is a great piece, and it just go. I mean, it makes you drunk to read that piece. It made me want bourbon, I have to say. That was really one. I've got one. This is by Matthew Amster Burton, who's unfortunately not in Seattle today, because I really wanted to chat with him. Friend of the show. Yeah. Um, and his lead is, Flipping TV channels in Japan offers a sensory overload unmatched by anything in the world. Click. <laughs> he's, he's he goes really on funny. with a, a girl group with 75 members in matching costumes, singing lyrics about the boyfriend they're contractually prohibited from having in real life. Click. A comedian getting punched in the nuts on a variety show. Click. A 50-year-old businessman eating lunch alone, slowly. <laughs> and I feel like I'm in the room with room, him. Yeah. Clicking through those channels. Right. Like, and he, he's creating a visual, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, here's another one. This is toast, a toast story by, by John Grevois from Pacific Standard. All the guy was doing was slicing inch-thick pieces of bread, putting them in a toaster, and spreading stuff on them. But what made me stare blinking to attention in the middle of a workday morning as I waited in line in an unfamiliar cafe was the way he did it. He had the solemn intensity of a ping-pong player who keeps his game very close to the table, knees slightly bent, wrist flicking the butter knife back and forth, eyes suggesting a kind of flow state. (laughs) I like that because it starts out with all he was doing was making toast and spreading stuff on it. And stuff. Stuff. And it's stuff. It's not in spreading blah, blah, blah. I, I think one thing that stands out to me in all the pieces that end up in these collections is that they don't have that overly flowery like kind of description that sometimes you see in food writing. So uh, the lush camembert fell to the... Yeah. <laughs> <Are they laughs> It's like it's like bad romance writing, right? I mean, what it does, it signals to me it's a kind of amateurish writing. Or You can't blame bloggers. They don't have editors. I mean, that's the beauty of blogging, is you can publish without having to have six people approve it. But on the other hand, if you're not somebody who's a natural editor yourself, I have to say the other night, it was really cute. We were in San Francisco doing a reading, and Kenji Lopez-Alt was reading the piece that's in this year's book. And he was reading, he said, recently I did so-and-so, and only, and recently I, and he just stopped and said, oh my God, I used recently in two sentences. <laughs> <laughs> His editor hadn't caught it, he hadn't caught it, and only when he was reading aloud did he hear it. And I thought, see, you know, anybody can make a mistake. He's a, one, he's a fabulous writer, but anybody can make a mistake, and it always helps to have another pair of eyes. And that's unfortunately what most bloggers don't have right and there's nobody saying tone down those adjectives you're using too many of them and you're using the same over and over that's a really great point and you also make the point which i think is really critical is reading your work out loud yes i read everything right when it when i think it's done i read it out loud i also my husband will read it to me so i can hear it acid test yeah and then i go ouch Right Just hand that back to me, please. <laughs> so um, in terms of, you know, kind of how the writing has changed over the years, have you noticed that there is a 
any kind of shift or trends that you see that you've been able to see? Because now you've been doing it for 17 years. It's amazing. 18, actually. 18, yeah. that's right. I think one, one thing that um, definitely has come along has been the sense of uh, journalists, serious journalists, um, Barry Estabrook and Roman Jacobson and Jane Black are doing stuff about food policy and food justice and environmentalism. And, and food is the filter that they see this through. But these are people who are writing, they're part of the, a national political conversation. Actually, after the omnivore's dilemma came out, suddenly people who had never thought about sustainability before were thinking about it now. Like anything, that can go down some crazy paths. I mean, it's people who fetishize organic food or who fetishize eating locally can take it to ridiculous lengths. But it, it got onto the national consciousness. And I think that 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 has been one of my pleasures is being able to spread those stories to a wider thing. So if Jane Black writes something in the Washington Post about the school lunch program, or if Jill Silva writes something in the Kansas City papers about food deserts, it can be read by people in other cities who have similar things going on there that they need to organize behind. Absolutely serious journalism, as serious as any political journalism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, done by really great investigative writers who are uh, just bringing wonderful stories to the fore. So that, I think, is the biggest change that I've noticed in the book over the years. I was on a panel in Virginia with um, four food writers and I, or, who were there as food writers, and I asked each of them, do you consider yourself a food writer? And one of them said, no, I consider myself a journalist. The next one said, no, I consider myself an essayist. And the other one said, no, I consider myself a reporter. And the last one said, no, I consider myself a lifestyle commentator. And food plays into all of those things. But those are four very different ways to approach writing about food. And I think that, that the diversity of the approach is what I love about getting it all together in one book. Because you look at it and you go, oh, yeah, this is food writing. And this is food writing, too. And this other very different thing is also food writing. And it also means that when it's on your bedside table, you can leaf through and say, I feel like reading something funny tonight. Or this is poignant. I think I can read this tonight. In last year's book, we had um, this In Praise of Ugly Food by Kat Kinsman, which was about, you know, it, sometimes a goulash is not beautiful and you and she likes to take pictures and put them on Instagram anyway to say, this was delicious. Take my word for it. It looks ugly. It was delicious. And there's a piece this year by uh, Irina Dumitrescu about the curious appeal of bad food. And um, Yes, I read that piece. And, and so this is something that a lot of people now are sort of championing because they want to push back against that idea of the perfect swirl of you know color on the plate and the how meticulously your parsley is placed on top of something. And and also, you know, the, the there was a piece we had a few years ago by Alyssa Altman, which is about, you know, your secret love for the, I think she called it drunk food. I think that was it. Yeah, I remember <laughs> that so piece. Late at night when you let go of all your gourmet pretensions, you go, ah, oh, man, I mean, hot chicken is drunk food, basically. <laughs> right. right. It's what you eat when you are, you're not trying to go highbrow anymore and you're just really just want a certain buzz. Absolutely. So um, with all the reading that you do, what trends do you see in terms of, like you were just talking about that pushback against perfection. Mm -hmm. um, what other trends do you see coming around in food writing right now? Certainly this year, there, there was this big conversation about 
what you might call ethnic food, other people call global food or immigrant food, and um, that when a white chef comes in and cooks that stuff and appropriates it, and suddenly he can charge more for it than the authentic cooks down the street in the smaller restaurant with the lower rent. Um, and so this year there were just an awful lot of wonderful pieces debating that. Again, I couldn't include all of them, but I think the, 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 the number that we had in this year's book hit enough different spots on that question. There's no, there's no answering that, really. Um, so I, that was definitely something, and there's been similar conversations in uh, movies and literature about who can write about certain things. And obviously you can, can't only write about your particular upbringing. You know, there are wonderfully gifted chefs who become fascinated with Thai food or Middle Eastern food and Mexican food, and you, you certainly can learn all about it, but don't pretend that you have elevated it because you as a white chef have come in to, write, to save this cuisine from being dirty and cheap. So I think that's, that's been a fast, and again, this is the kind of conversation we wouldn't have had in the food world 18 years ago. Uh, it's now because people are taking it seriously. You know, the cultural ramifications of food are important. Uh, so that, that, I read an awful lot of stuff, you know, and everybody else was reading the same series of articles and responding to them. So that, that was a great conversation. I think that there's a lot of talk about foods of the future, and it'll be interesting to see which ones pan out. I mean, obviously, there's the plant-based burgers, which Kenji Lopez-Alt wrote about this year, and we had a piece about it last year. And there's a great piece by Rowan Jacobson this year about seaweed and how people are trying to make seaweed into the new, because it's vegetable and protein and everything all together, and it's just full of minerals and really good. And the question is, and they believe that it can be harvested endlessly and it can be a sustainable sort of crop, but who's going to eat it is the question. So it's a wonderful piece. So we're kind of, there's some prognostication, you know, and looking forward to foods of the future that we can um, eat sustainably and ethically. And every year there's different things that come in there. A few, couple of years ago, uh, there were, there were a, I say again, I can't remember which ones actually got in, but three or four pieces about chefs who are deliberately going after invasive species and finding ways to cook them so that chefs will want to buy them so that there's some financial incentive for fishermen to get them out of the ocean. and or I mean, if we could find a way to make kudzu into the new it vegetable, <laughs> we'd right. finally be able to rip it up from alongside all the highways where it's overtaken. Right. I know people who are listening to this podcast um, – are food writers or aspiring food writers. So, you know, you of the woman who reads 1,500 food stories a year, so what advice do you give to people who are, say, starting out or they have their blog and they're really trying to really, you know, become a better writer or a good writer, you know, and they really want to write about food? What advice do you give to them? I think one of the things that really helped me as a writer starting out was the idea that you have your intended audience. And it's not just, well, maybe if it's just your friends and your family, that's fine. Don't expect your readership to expand much beyond that. Um, so think of who you really want to write for and why you want to write for them, why they, you would want them to read um, your pieces. 
you don't necessarily need to be thinking that the whole way through, but I think one of your read-throughs, you should definitely say, am I answering the questions they would have about this? Am I sparking their interest? You know, how is this advancing the conversation that I have with my audience? I think that's one of the wonderful things about a blog is that it gives you an opportunity to hone your own voice. So people feel when they, when they open up your blog that some of who you are comes through. It doesn't mean oversharing the details of your life, but it means knowing the, the words you would use and the constructions you would use. And that's where reading out loud really helps. But you do that because you know, in a blog, you've got an audience and you're, it's like you have a club and you want more people to want to join your club. And you want to offer something to them that makes them come to your club over and over again. So voice and audience are something that every writer is always trying to work on. Uh, and now I can open, sometimes I can, people who've been in the book two or three times, I can open a piece without seeing the byline and knowing who it is because they have that voice. Um, and we used to try to pretend a dining critic would say, oh, I am the objective judge of what food is good. And they had, have an objective tone and they were pointing to certain factors in a room. And now everyone acknowledges that your reaction to a restaurant or reaction to eating a certain sort of food is a lot about who you are, where you came from, whether it was raining outside the night you went, whether your waiter was rude, um, and you're trying to get some core of real thing to say about this that will be useful to your readers, but acknowledging that we're all human and you know when you're in a place, it's a, a human experience to be there. Yeah, I think that you really hit on something because I think that to me, really, when I I find an emotional connection to a piece, either because it's something I can relate to or whatever, I find often that is when writers are willing to be vulnerable to share mm -hmm. something about themselves to not that you know shows that they're not perfect. I mean, no one loves a perfect heroine, right? <laughs> Everybody <laughs> wants the flawed person, and uh, you know. My good friend, Monica Bidier, she mm -hmm. said that by far and away, the most popular piece on her blog is titled, I Am a Failure. Oh, I love that piece, yeah. 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 Well, this has been a great, uh, great chat. Thanks for coming to my kitchen. I, I forgot we were on broadcasting because it's been a fun chat. Yeah, it has been a fun chat. I've been looking forward to talking to you about the best food series for ages. So and my husband always laughs. He says, "Well, this is your best food writing season." You know, <laughs> but I, I look forward to it because now I finally get to meet all the people whose work I've been reading, and that's such a pleasure. Absolutely. Well, and, and this has been a pleasure. I will say one other thing. I always tell people, I'll tell my food writing students, and it's true. I think for all writing, um, you know, you really learn how to write by reading. And so I always assign this book. Good. I, I, say, I just say, I want you to go out and just find one or two copies of these and just go through and read them all the way through and kind of try to figure out how they worked, mm -hmm. like how the stories are constructed. And, you know, now I think I would also add into that, like, where does it make a turn to, to say something that it's not really, like it may be about basil, but maybe it's really not about that at all. Yeah, yeah it always has to offer a little bit more. Than yeah. Well, thank you so much. This thank you for asking great. me. And thanks for the hot chicken. My mouth is still burning.
My guest today has been Holly Hughes. She was the editor of the Best Food Writing Series. And I say was because Holly and I had this conversation a couple of years ago. And as it turns out, that 2017 edition, the one that we talked about, it was the last in that series. To understand the fate of the Best Food Writing Series requires a little peek into the business side of modern publishing. It's an industry that is marked by constant acquisitions and consolidations. The series' original publisher, Marlowe & Company, was acquired by a division to Decapo Press in 2007. In 2016, the Hachette Book Group, one of the big six publishing houses, bought Decapo's parent company, Perseus Press. Two people with insider knowledge about the situation said that after the sale, Hachette did an audit of the assets it bought, an utterly reasonable thing for a business to do. The Best Food Writing series was beloved by readers, but it wasn't a huge revenue generator, according to my sources. It was also a matter of timing. Shortly after the Hachette deal, Houghton Mifflin, another big publisher, announced it would be publishing its own culinary anthology, Best American Food Writing. First edition came out curated by none other than arguably the country's most famous name in food writing, Ruth Reichel. The next two editions were edited by Samin Nasrat and J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, both authors with massive audiences and wildly successful books. I reached out to Hachette, but in the midst of the COVID-19 shutdown, I didn't hear back. Not really that surprising. When I do, I will put their comments on the episode page. But after listening to all the passion that Holly expressed about reading those 1500 pieces and looking beyond the obvious places to find new and talented writers and give them exposure, the demise of the series makes me sad. I can't deny it. Books are a labor of love for authors, and in Holly's case, being entrusted with the series surely became a part of her identity. As an author myself, I understand too that publishing, it's a business. Companies are in it to publish good works, but to also turn a profit in an era where that's already a big challenge. In the end, this wasn't personal. It was just business. The irony is that the first book in the competing series was Reichel, former editor at Gourmet, a beloved food magazine that was also abruptly shuttered by corporate decision makers. In these challenging times, perhaps the best we can do is be grateful for what we've got. There are 17 editions of Best Food Writing. They're all great. They're all still in print. You can go and buy them anywhere books are sold. Thanks for listening today. You can find the recipe for the Nashville hot chicken which was awesome, and a link to the asparagus soup on my website, hungryforwords.show or kathleenflynn.com slash podcast. Today's show is produced by Abby Circatella. Music is by audionautics.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, so leave us a review on iTunes, or you can even send us an email at info at kathleenflynn.com. That's it for our show. Eat well and be kind. I'm Kathleen Flynn. <laughs>